Sometimes it takes a different approach to help you unlock your true potential. Capella University's game-changing FlexPath format helps you learn at your own pace and fit earning a degree into your life. From before you enroll to after you graduate, you'll be supported by people who are invested in your success so you can pursue your goals knowing that help is available if you need it. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun? Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show on the Choose Yourself Network. Today on the James Altucher Show... We love to label people, we love to dehumanize people, we love to declare other people insane, you know, especially people that we don't like. In a weird kind of way, I think I've gone from being the prosecution to the defense over my career. Like, I'm much more interested in trying to understand people who are kind of demonized and dehumanized, and when appropriate, try and rehumanize them. Um, I think most people deserve that. Not not everybody, but most people do. I want to ask about that. And I highly encourage everybody to read all of your books, but like, let's just talk about the psychopath test. You have the guy who's in the hospital who seems to all outward appearances totally normal, and he's even insisting, I'm not a psychopath. And the doctors, of course, say, that's like the exact thing a psychopath would say. Yeah. Well, actually, so his story is that when he was 17, he beat someone up badly, and he was on remand in prison. And his cellmate said to him, you know, you're looking at five to seven years in prison unless you fake madness. And then you'll get sent to some cushy hospital and you have your own PlayStation, nurses will bring you pizzas. So that's what he did. So he faked delusions and hallucinations. Um, he said he told the prison psychiatrist that he wanted to watch women as they died because it would make him feel more normal, which it turns out is faking madness too well because they didn't send him to some crazy hospital. They sent him to Baltimore Asylum for the Criminally Insane. So they sent him there and then he was stuck. I am so happy to have one of my favorite writers and thinkers on the podcast, John Ronson. If you don't recognize his name, I guarantee you're going to recognize some of his books or even the movie based on one of his books. Uh, the Men Who Stare at Goats, which had George Clooney and others, was based on one of John's books. Uh, his most recent books were uh, So You've Been Publicly Shamed, which is one of my favorite books by him, and The Psychopath Test, and them, Adventures with Extremists. You know, John, I've first off, welcome. Thank you. Hey, thank you for having me. And uh, I'm glad we've, how many times have we tried to schedule? We've, uh, it's oh. like over like two years, I feel we've tried to schedule this. Yeah, I'm sorry. I've been elusive. The last time I was going to do it, I, I, I got a cold. I thought it was the flu. I've been obsessed with the flu. Obsessed. I even wore one of those masks on the plane to San Antonio last week, like one of those like 
masks. You're one of those people? <laughs> well, I, I became one of those people because like, everyone was like dying of the flu and I was taking it seriously. I got, I got so obsessed and I wore a mask on the plane and I, and I bought hand sanitizer and I wiped everything down and I did everything right. And then I got back home to the Upper West Side. Um, I was even wiping down like the taxi and everything. And then I got in the elevator in my apartment building and this 83-year-old man got in straight after me and immediately coughed and sneezed all over my face and I could feel his like spittle going into my mouth and eyes and it was just such a terrible irony that I was the one who'd gone to all the efforts for that to not happen and then it, and then it happened. Why don't you get a flu vaccine? Oh, I did, but you clearly haven't been reading every single thing that I've been reading. No, I haven't been. Okay. <laughs> well, it's only 10 to 30% effective. I... Um, I... Never read the news. Uh, I just read your books. Okay. <laughs> so when you finally write the book about the flu, then I will be aware of all the things that you have read about this. Can I tell you the worst flu story I've yes. recently read? I mean, this is the 1918 flu, luckily, not the 2018 flu. I'm about to haunt a lot of people with what I'm about to tell you. Um, in the 1918 flu, people were getting on the train at Coney Island after having like a lovely day at the beach, perfectly fine. They were being taken off the train at Columbus Circle, dead. 45 minutes later, they went from, maybe the trains took a little bit more time in wow. 1918. So the, so the flu, so a powerful version of the flu could be that? Yeah, that's so, what so happened it, in 1918. So, you, so you, go on a, you get on the train with no flu, your lungs are empty. Yeah. Okay, just have air in them. 45 and then, minutes later, let's say an hour just How could your lungs fill up with that much like liquids? To kill, because that's what the flu does, right? Is it, it clogs yeah, your lungs? I guess. I'm no doctor. I just read obsessively about the flu. I don't believe the flu. that story. I wish I could remember the source of it. I mean, I guess if somebody wanted to Google flu 1918, Coney Island, Columbus Circle, because those were the actual train stops that they were talking about. It sort of shows you also that for all of these, flu, if that story is true, which I'm 50-50, let's just say. Can someone Google it? Okay. Is anyone going to Google that? Like, We'll figure it, that it's out. It's possible that I invented it in a kind of fever nightmare <laughs> about getting, about you know the possibility of getting the flu. But, but it's interesting, like so many people are afraid of so many different strains of the flu now. Like you get bird, avian flu, swine flu, all these different flu. If that story is true, like that sounds mm -hmm. so much more horrible than any version of the flu in the yeah. past 20 years that I've heard about. Yeah, so, I know. I know. There's that's no, bad. There's no upside to that story. The only potential upside to that story is that it's not true. So, so, right. So let's, we'll, we'll find out shortly. We've got like five people in here uh, listening, so we'll find out. Okay. But uh, so many of your books are so fascinating. Like um, the psychopath test is all about, uh, you know, a, a a test to see if you're a psychopath, but also the the sheer number of people who may be psychopaths and what the question of whether or not they're evil or not like we normally think of psychopaths as these like you know dr evil or, or whether or not they're effective in some ways like you mentioned ceos who are extremely effective and and pass this psychopath test and i just also want to mention uh so you've been publicly shamed is so much about this the negative consequences of this new culture of internet that we have that you know you you, you talk for instance about justine sacco who makes a very inappropriate tweet uh, when she's you know taking off on a plane, and by the time her plane lands, her her tweet has been spread so virally, and and everybody hates her so much. Her her career is like ruined by the time she the plane lands. Mm. She didn't even know it was happening. And you go over many of these stories of 
of people have been publicly shamed because of this new viralness of the internet. And it's like a horror story. And you know, I think there's a connection. Like at first you might think there's no real connection between that Justin Sacco story and the psychopath test. But I think there is but a I connection. But I do think there's a big connection actually, but go ahead. Okay, well, well for me the connection is our desire. Like we love to label people. We love to dehumanize people. We love to declare other people insane, you know, especially people that we don't like. And in the psychopath test, the first half of the book is what you described about, you know, me going on a course to teach me how to spot psychopaths. And then I journey into the corridors of power to see if I can spot any, you know, high scoring psychopathic CEOs. But then there's like the slow realization that I've kind of got drunk with my psychopath spotting skills. And I start spotting, I'm, I'm spotting like them everywhere. And with Justin Sacco, and I think with you know the many, many people like Justin Sacco on social media, on Twitter particularly, who we don't know anything about, you know, I'm not talking about like really famous people, I'm talking about people with like a hundred Twitter followers, and suddenly they do something slightly wrong. And everybody thinks that they know everything about that person. They, you know, the world fills in the gaps. They take a sliver of that person's life, a badly worded tweet, and turn it into an entire, like, they know everything about that person. And I think that's the connection, is this, it's our desire to be these kind of sleuths, to to label and demonize strangers. Well, and, and in that sense, it's almost like the, the, the internet doing the shaming, whether correctly or incorrectly, like Justine Sacco, whether incorrectly or incorrectly, it's the internet doing the shaming that almost takes on the characteristics of a psychopath. It's sort of this kind of uh, uh, massive uh, feeling of power without empathy. Yeah. And, and aiming it at a, at a target. And actually, when I was writing So You've Been Publicly Shamed, I, I had that thought. I, I wondered if I go back to the psychopath checklist, how many items on the psychopath checklist relate to the way that we behave on social media. And actually, not many. Um, you know, on the psychopath checklist, you've got things like promiscuous sexual behavior, you know, and, and um, grandiose sense of self-worth. And I think you'd be, a, you know, you'd sort of be hard-pressed to think, oh, well, on Twitter makes us more grandiose, Twitter makes us more sexually promiscuous. But what Twitter does do is one of the big items on the psychopath checklist, which is it robs us of our empathy. Let me caveat that, though, to say um, it, we are very empathetic about things within our own echo chamber. So as social justice people, we're very empathetic about social justice causes, which, of course, is great, and it gives rise to fantastic campaigns like like the campaign against Charlottesville, the Nazis in Charlottesville, and Me Too, and most recently, you know, the extraordinary success that the Parkland kids are having against the NRA. Um, but it's always a partial empathy, and we have zero empathy or regard for people who we consider to be not within our echo chamber. And as a result, we've created an extremely polarized world where we identify more than ever, I think, with our groups. And from that polarized world, I think it's carnage. I, 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 think, I think it's why we have Trump as a president. Oh my God, John, there's actually 17,000 different directions I want to go right now. But the first is, uh, you also wrote that book, Them, Mm -hmm. I guess it, the subtitles maybe adventures with extremists or your adventures with extremists. Mm -hmm. And so the first thing I want to point out is you have this somewhat gonzo style where you're a character in your books, like, you yeah. know, which is 
it's not straight nonfiction. You're telling your story, interacting with these experiences. Yeah, they're kind of adventure stories. Like I'm not, I'm not for, I'm you know, I'm not like a pop science writer. I don't have all the answers. Uh, which, I, is a, which was a great, uh, uh-huh. uh, not excuse, but a great thing to say when everyone, when uh, the, the the psychiatric industry was all over you, trying to publicly shame you after the psychopath <laughs> test. Oh, they're not much. You know, most people. There was a little bit of pushback. Um, with the psychopath test, but actually, you know, I do these talks, I, I do the show called Psychopath Night uh, in right. Britain where I have kind of special guests. It's like a sort of mental health variety show and we do it in quite big theatres now in Britain and and um, uh, the audience is full of like clinicians and patients um, and i got to say the pushback is really, really, like most people really appreciate the fact that I as a kind of outside eye came in and wrote a book where I'm not saying this is how you can spot psychopaths. I'm basically saying, look at our cognitive biases. Look at how mm. fucked up I became when I got drunk with my psychopath spotting powers. So actually I can only think of two occasions since the psychopath test came out when somebody said, oh, John Ronson shouldn't have written this book, he's not a clinician. You know, the, the vast majority of people really appreciate the book. And and I can't tell you how happy I am about that because I, I don't want to be this kind of contrarian. There's a book out right now called Lost Connections by a writer called Johan Harry. And his book is a very kind of contrarian book. It's like um, antidepressants, you know, are nowhere near as good as people think they are. And, you know, he, he's, he's very kind of R.D. Langish, you know. But I, I'm not. I, I'm. It's an eye comparison, by the way. Artie Langish. Yeah. Like the comedian. No, 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 no. Oh no, you're thinking of Artie Lang. That's my terrible English accent. <laughs> I'm thinking of Artie Lang, the anti-psychiatrist from uh, the 1960s. Okay. Um, <laughs> I was wondering, like, why, right. how that would come up. <laughs> I'm glad you. I'm glad we clarified. Um, Artie Lang ran, he was like one of the first great, you know, mental illness doesn't exist. There's no such thing as anxiety disorders. Uh, they're just a response to an anxiety-inducing world. So R.D. Lang was a kind of famous anti-psychiatrist. Um, and my book, The Psychopath Tests, sort of, I come to conclusions that aren't a million miles away from that. But I'm not a polemicist. I'm, I, I have like, I'm an adventurer. What's a polemicist? A polemicist is, you know, somebody who, 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 who has a sort of single narrow f- focus um, well, on a story. Well, well, I think that's what what separates out your writing, and that's uh-huh. this this almost Gonzo element. I say almost for a variety of reasons, but like Hunter S. Thompson did have a point of view when he was doing his Gonzo journalism. So yeah. He would thrust himself into this situation, but always with he had a certain perspective of who he was going to insult and who he was not going to. Yeah. You're kind of like an innocent character exploring, as you say, in in your books, but you're still a, a character there. It's a different a different take on that style. Yeah. And, also, I, and I, I, I appreciate of, that style. I like that style. Yeah. Also, when I think of Gonzo, when I think of Hunter S. Thompson, I think of him like, you know, taking acid and going to a police convention. And I, I don't do that. Right, but you still will put your, you will still find a unique situation and put yourself in the middle of it and then oh my gosh, I'm in this situation, here's yeah. what happened next. Like, And that's why I, uh, the next thing I was going to say was your book, Them, you know, Adventures with Extremists, if you had written that now, given the internet and your experiences with you know, the psychopath test and so you've been publicly shamed, I bet you that would be a different book now. Yeah, I even think about written it like just a couple of years later. The, the book came out just before 9-11. 
And what I think I, I, I noticed before other people did with that book was the relationship between conspiracy theories and, and extremism. So it started with me. I spent a year with an Islamic militant called Omar Bakri Muhammad, uh, who outed me as a Jew at his jihad training camp. Are you Jewish? I am. Oh, can you please leave the studio? We don't really do podcasts with Jews here. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm Jewish. So okay, yeah. <laughs> Plus we're in the Upper West Side. It's funny, actually, in a building that, I, not the building I live in now, but in another building I lived in in the Upper West Side, the doorman said to my son, um, he said, don't tell anyone, but um, I'm reading this book called, what was it called? I'm reading this book called um, Synagogue of Satan. And I, and I was thinking, God, like if you're anti-Semitic, you're really in the wrong place. Yeah, don't be a doorman here. <laughs> go, to the, go to the Lower East Side. Mm -hmm. uh, but, Where the Jews came from until they moved to the Upper West yeah, Side. Yeah, until they got rich because yeah. we control everything and moved to the Upper exactly. West Side. So, um, uh, yeah, so so Omar outed me as a Jew at his jihad training camp and, and I had all these kind of adventures with like the Klan and... and uh, well, why, so this, was fa this is fascinating, like... How did you get in the middle of a jihad training camp? Um, I think we just kept asking Omar if we could go to his jihad training camp. It's like, Omar, can we, can we come to your jihad training camp? And like, and how did you get there? Like, fine. Got the train. It was near Gatwick Airport. Um, it was in England, in a place called Crawley, near Gatwick. Um, at the time, it was funny. It's much less funny now. Um, at the time, it was funny because it, this was like nine. This was at the kind of beginning of my career. This was like nineteen ninety six, and yeah, I was seeing this book like literally decades ago. Yeah, and militant Islamism wasn't a big deal back in ninety six. So it wasn't so, like you went to this thing and you were going to immediately report it to M six or anything like that. No, we thought Omar was a little bit of a fantasist, I suppose. Um, or, you know, he had this idea about... I mean, he's definitely a bit of a fantasist. I mean, he said he wouldn't rest until he saw the flag of Islam flying over the White House and Downing Street, and that's not going to happen. But what we, what we didn't predict was just how violent Omar's people would become in, in the subsequent years. So the people at his jihad training camp seemed pretty harmless back in 96, but now... You know, they've they some of them have driven vans into people. You know, they're, they're but was that was that a little naive on your side? Given that I mean, there was already the first attack on the World Trade Center in like ninety two or, or yeah, ninety three, and then there was, of course, there's constant battles and or, or terrorist attacks in the Middle East, all over the place. Was it naive? Um, let me tell you what I think we were good at with that story. Uh, we were we were very good at like getting into Omar's world mm. and seeing the kind of mechanics of, of a sort of fledgling jihad campaign. Um, you know, we noticed Omar when other people didn't. Also, I think one, one real kind of contribution that we made with that story was looking at the relationship between conspiracy theories and political extremism that people really weren't thinking about back then. But, well, well I, 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 so, so forgive my naive mm -hmm. questions, but... There's political extremism and there's conspiracy. So, mm -hmm. so what's where, where where are you connecting them? Well, what the, the kind of real breakthrough? Actually, but let me sort of answer the, the, the final question mm -hmm. about the violence. I mean, none of Omar's people, neither Omar nor none of his people at the time, had committed any acts of violence. Mm -hmm. uh, that happened later. So, yeah, were we naive? I, I guess a, a little naive, but I think it was understandable. 
Uh, in answer to the other question, so Omar said to me, did you know that there was a shadowy cabal that was secretly ruling the world from inside a secret room? And they're called the Bilderberg Group. And I thought, oh, okay. And I sort of didn't pay any attention to it. But then about a year later, I was in Harrison, Arkansas with a faction of the Ku Klux Klan. It was a politically correct faction of the Klan. They'd banned the robes and the hoods and the cross burnings. They'd banned all the things that were presumably the most fun about being in the clan. And uh, um, and they said the same thing to me. They said, did you know there was this group called the Bilderberg Group that secretly ruled the world? And I thought, this is extraordinary. You know, this, this group I've never heard of, both the clan and militant Islamists, who you would think had, would have nothing much in common, had this in common. And that became quite a sort of revelation to us. And so that's why I started hanging out with... Um, fledgling conspiracy broadcasters like Alex Jones. We pretty much star-spotted Alex Jones in that book. Um, right before he really broke out. Yeah. Uh, and well, what, what did you see about him that you said to yourself, that man's a star? Oh, he really was. Um, look, I've got no time for Alex politically or, mm. or, you know, in fact, I think he's getting worse and worse. Yeah. I think... Um, I think he, ever since he became rich and powerful, he got worse, not better. Some people, I think, maybe get better, like, like with power comes responsibility. Well, I think also there's a, that saying that I, I think is really true, which is wealth doesn't make you better or worse, but it magnifies what's already inside of you. Right, yeah. What happened with Alex was that somebody, just a few years ago, someone came to him, I can't remember the guy's name, and said, I can make you rich. Uh, and the way to make you rich is to, for you to get into the supplement selling market. So we started selling these like supplements called super male vitality. And he went from making like no money to making, someone told me like he could make $100,000 a day selling these supplements on, on a good day. So Alex suddenly became super rich. And at the same time, Trump declared himself a fan of Alex's. And those two things happening together just... Just, you know, just sort of, you know, Alex was malevolent anyway. He'd already said that Sandy Hook hadn't, you know, was a hoax and so on. But those two things just, you know, turned Alex into a, such a kind of nightmare. So, so, so what do you, what, so we're, we're, we're kind of uh, three tangents deep into a question, but I, I am curious, like, what did you see in Alex Jones then that um, you were like, okay, he's different from other kind mm -hmm. of just extremist radio hosts. Sure. Well, I'd spent quite a lot of time with a few people like that back then. There was David Icke. Uh, he's the guy who believes that the ruling elite are actually blood-drinking, child-sacrificing, paedophile lizards who've adopted human form. What really made me laugh wow. about that story was the Anti-Defamation League were convinced that when he said um, blood-drinking, child-sacrificing, paedophile lizards, he was using code. And what he actually meant was Jews. Right. Well, it is a narrative that Jews have, have, have attacked People have used to attack Jews. Yeah, I mean, there's lots Back of... Back in the Inquisition. Yeah, there's lots of, you know, cartoons, Nazi cartoons of Jews looking like reptiles mm. enslaving the world and so on. But David Icke would say, no, no, I really mean lizards. Uh, so the Anti-Defamation League would go, well, that's that's code too. Um, but I was so I was really I really found that funny. Like um, this is why I'm glad I wrote the book before 9/11 because you could find that kind of thing funny, and I'm right. glad I I could find it funny because it just made it a rich and funny and you know. Well, well, it's weird because 9/11, the world mm -hmm. became a much more dangerous place with much 
it's much harder to climb walls mm. separating factions, but you were able to get a story before 9-11 by going in and out of all these factions because no one was really... Life was good yeah. all around. No one was really thinking about this. Yeah, and also conspiracy culture got a lot darker after 9-11. Yeah. Um, I, you know, they, they started attacking, you know, victims. You know, like they do these days kind of routinely, the way that the, the Parkland kids are being attacked. Um, they would start trolling mm. and attacking victims who, who, who they thought were crisis actors. You know, and it's it's quite hard to be funny about that stuff. So that's why I'm glad I wrote the book before nine eleven. But in answer to your question about Alex, um, he he was incredible. Like I knew him when he was twenty six. First time I met him, I was at Waco at David Koresh's church with Randy Weaver, whose family had been killed up at Ruby Ridge. Uh, this was like an early militia sort of white separatist sort of touch point. This the shooting of, of an unarmed woman and a little boy at this cabin in Idaho called Ruby Ridge. So I was with two of the survivors, Randy and Rachel Weaver, and we went to Waco uh, where they were rebuilding David Koresh's church and there was a bonfire like, late at night and all these militia guys, including some pretty famous ones like Bo Greitz, who was the uh, inspiration... Right. Yeah, the inspiration for for Rambo, apparently. Um, we're all sitting around the campfire. But there was this young guy sitting around the campfire everybody was in awe of, even though he was only 26 years old. And he was so, like, charismatic and um, eloquent. Uh, uh, um, what does charismatic mean in this context? Well, I just remember, so the first time I saw him, I was with Randy Weaver, who within militia white separatist circles is like a legendary figure. And Randy Weaver sort of melted when he saw Alex Jones. He was like, oh my God, I'm such a fan. And Alex is just like this. He was younger. I mean, like, I, I'm, I'm, I'm sure pretty much everybody listening to this sort of knows what Alex is like because they've seen Infowars. But imagine a sort of less, I don't know, younger and... Um, a bit more sort of ingenue-ish and just... Uh, well, just... Sorry, I don't know how... Sorry, I have to ask you definitions so much. My my vocabulary is limited. Right. I, I think I think you're doing... You know, I went on that book notes on, uh, on C-SPAN one time and the guy interviewing me kept asking me what words meant. But I, but I thought, like, he did know what the words meant. He just thought it'd be kind of interesting to ask yeah. and then... It would open up, but do you really? But, yeah, yeah, I really don't know. Okay, no, I think yeah. I still think that you do. Um, <laughs> there was just, I'm trying to think of a good moment with Alex. Um, you know, he would give these big, bizarre, eloquent, extraordinary speeches that just made me think this guy's like, like he's like Bill Hicks, he's he's this kind of extraordinary. Huh comedic talent who unfortunately is using his his oratory skills for bad because he's spreading you know at best untrue and at worst uh, malevolent conspiracy theories so 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 okay so now all these different groups are saying the Bilderberg group and then of course that led you to try to find yeah, I tried to sneak group. into a Bilderberg meeting. Um, I got chased by... So they all, everybody started telling me, like, if you want to know more about Bilderberg, you should ask Big Jim Tucker. So Big Jim Tucker was a sports reporter from Washington, D.C., who had dedicated his life to trying to uncover the evil, shadowy Bilderberg group. So he's so... 
Jim Tucker said to me, you've caught me at a good time. I've actually discovered where they're meeting next. And they're meeting at the Sintra Park Hotel and Golfing Resort, Caesar Park in Sintra, Portugal. He said, I'm going to fly over there, climb up the drain pipes, get in and confront them red-handed going about their covert wickedness. Uh, so I said, well, can I come? And he said, okay. So I flew to Portugal with Jim Tucker. Uh, and this was the day before the Bilderberg Group was supposed to be arriving. And the hotel, there were still like holidaymakers at the hotel. And Jim like, got out his notepad. I was member, got out his notepad and wrote down, there's still civilians here. Like to Jim, they were civilians, not mm. holidaymakers. Mm. So we started like um, scoping around the hotel, trying to forge contacts with waiters and chambermaids, which was going very badly because we just we were just a bizarre couple. Jim was this kind of elderly um, southern gentleman wearing like a straw hat and braces and spats, and I just looked like a sort of awkward early thirties. Jewish toy boy. So <laughs> the two of us were like, we had like no success. And then we left. This, as I say, this was the day before the Bilderberg group was supposed to be arriving. So then we left and we started getting chased by security, Bilderberg security. These men in dark glasses started chasing us in a in a dark green Lancia. Chasing or following? Well, I was going 30 miles an hour and so was he. But I I believe that if I'd gone faster, he would have gone faster. Mm. So following. <laughs> but, but it went on for days and it went on for two days. Um, I stopped the car on a deserted lane. He stopped his car behind us. I went up to him. I thought, I, I, you know, I have to talk to him. So I went up to him and knocked on his window. I was trying to say like, I'm a journalist. You know, I may be in the car with Big Jim Tucker, but I am not of Big Jim Tucker. <laughs> <I'm> like, <laughs> um, and, and the guy wouldn't look at me. He just uh, wouldn't look at me. He just was just... Staying straight ahead. So then I phoned up the British Embassy and I said, I'm being chased by the Bilderberg Group. And the woman on the phone went, <gasps> and then she went, go on. <laughs> so I said, I'm sorry, but I just heard a sharp intake of breath. And she said, well, so what are you doing here? So I said, I, I'm, I am essentially a humorous journalist out of my depth. I said, can you phone Bilderberg and tell them that? And then she said the weirdest thing to me. She said, look, she said, the good news is if you know you're being followed, they're probably just trying to intimidate you. And the dangerous ones would be those that you don't know are following you. But I thought... Good well, advice in general. Well, I thought good advice, but what if they are the dangerous ones and I just happen to be like naturally good at spotting them? Because <laughs> like, I, am, I am prone to anxiety, which means I'm probably more likely to know when I'm being tailed by, by the secret henchmen of the shadowy elite that rules the world. <laughs> <laughs> so then I went back to the hotel and they followed us to the hotel. I was sitting by the pool and they were like standing behind a tree. And this lasted for like two days, two days of just being you know, surveilled by... I, I, I seriously thought about abandoning the story and just driving from Portugal back to England. And I'm so glad I didn't because it, it, that story kind of launched my career. So, because what I realised when it was all over and I was back in London writing it up was this was really important for me because I, I saw the world through the eyes of Alex Jones and Jim Tucker. Like I felt the paranoia that they felt. I mean, fortunately, I, I got out of it the other side, and I began to, you know, and I, I, and I seemed, 
I, I remember, I seem to remember from the book, um, it really was a whole lot of nothing. Yeah, well, build a bit kind of, ex- I mean, it exists. It exists with a lot of rich people getting together and hanging out, but it's not like yeah, they're deciding I, the fate of that they're carving up the world or anything. Well, look, if they if they really were you know, deciding the fate of the world, I, I really don't think they'd have allowed Trump to get elected <laughs> or Brexit to happen. I mean, they're, they're sort of, you know, left-leaning, with the exception of people like Kissinger, who just wants to belong to like every secret club going. Um, I think you. I remember you describing Kissinger in the in that book, right? Yeah. Well, somebody said to me that like part of the reason why Dave, David Lord Owen, who's like a liberal British lord, who was part of the Bilderberg Group, eventually members of the Bilderberg Group would talk to me, and one of them said, "Yeah, no, part of the reason that was so secret is because." Uh, Henry Kissinger thinks that's cool. <laughs> um, so besides, like people, that's like, really great information. Yeah. So besides people like Kissinger, it's basically a centrist, left-leaning, globalist think tank. I mean, they wanna they want to impact the world. They want politicians to be globalist. Um, you know, they want that. They want to take powers power away from autocratic politicians and give it to CEOs because they think that CEOs are more rational than authoritarian politicians. So they do want to influence the world, but they're not the secret rulers of the world. So, so it's interesting because then, like you say, this this book started your career, and and you've been very successful. You always put yourself in these unusual situations. Ha, you know, and kind of fumble your way through them and, and figure things out, and they're fascinating. I think that's what makes your books so readable. I also neglected to mention what I, a, a collection of your stories, Lost at Sea, which I think is really great as well, which is kind of mini experiences that you've had along the way. Um, I want to ask you about your your process, but I'm also just so curious about some of the the books. Like The Psychopath Test, I always think a very simple definition, and correct me if I'm wrong, a, a narcissist might be someone. Uh, the difference between a, a narcissist and a psychopath might be that the narcissist wasn't loved very much as a kid, so lost this ability to have empathy, but still has the potential for it. Still has the brain potential for it. Whereas a, a sociopath or psychopath does not have the brain uh, 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 infrastructure to have empathy. Yeah, that that's where I mean. I think some people would disagree with that because there's so much factionalism within. The mental health world, but that's what I think too. Um, so narcissists, people suffering narcissistic personality disorder are like kind of wounded animals who lash out, whereas psychopaths, sociopaths are like predatory animals. Maybe that's the kind of difference between the two. And how would you, how do you go about now spotting, you, would you walk around like the Upper West Side of New York saying, oh, that guy's a definite psychopath. <laughs> unless like, it's... That unless bodega it's, owner. <laughs> unless I'm on a story, which I actually am at the moment, but I, I, I can't say anything about it, but I'm on a story at the moment where I suspect one of the people in the story may be sociopathic. So unless something like that happens, or unless somebody in the news acts unbelievably psychopathically, like straight out of the checklist, I I don't those thoughts don't enter my mind anymore. I I like like having the adventure. I think a lot of journalists are like this. Like, you know, you you immerse yourself totally in a story, and it matters more than anything else in the world. But then when it's done and you finished, you know, your speaking tour, you finished talking about it, it's kind of gone, and and you move on to something new. Yes, it's totally true. 
Airbnb has changed my life. If anything, they have made my life so much better. Like I used to live in Airbnbs. I, I lived in over a hundred or two hundred different Airbnbs over a three-year period, and I loved it. I love. I became a really good guest of Airbnbs, and I got to know lots of hosts. So when I initially owned a house, I of course the first thing I thought was I'm going to turn my house into an Airbnb because I travel a lot. So why leave my house unused when I can make a side income? by letting others Airbnb my house or come to stay in my house as guests. And having my own Airbnb or, or being a host for Airbnb has allowed me to do just that. And I've met other hosts. I've actually spoken at Airbnb's host conference. I think it was in 2017. I met so many just nice hosts. It's a great community. And I love you know turning my own home into an Airbnb. Like I'm traveling to Austin next month. My home's gonna be an Airbnb while I'm away and I'll stay in an Airbnb. I'd rather stay in like a three-story house Airbnb than in one tiny hotel room in, in the middle of Austin during South by Southwest. So listen, while you're away, your home could be an Airbnb. Many people host on Airbnb, but there are people who are just letting their house sit empty who've never thought about it or didn't realize their space could be an Airbnb. Hosting can easily fit into your lifestyle and is a great way to earn some extra money. So if you have a home, but you're not always at home, then you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Daylight savings time is starting up again. Okay, podcast is over. That's all you needed to know. But why do we have uh, daylight savings time? Answer, to give us more daylight from March through November. By setting your clocks forward, it may feel like there are more hours in the day that initial, when we initially start daylight savings. But if you're hiring, it doesn't necessarily help you find qualified candidates for your roles any sooner. There's only one way to do that, ZipRecruiter. And right now you can try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter works around the clock to find qualified candidates for you. Once you post your job on ZipRecruiter, they send it to 100 plus job sites so you reach more of the right people. This is such a brilliant idea for a business and ZipRecruiter did it. So ZipRecruiter's smart technology also quickly scans thousands of resumes to identify people whose skills and experience match your job. I've used ZipRecruiter particularly as a potential employee and I still to this day get messages every day. James Aldacher, would you like to apply to be VP of entertainment at NBC or whatever. So there's just nonstop emails. Like I got five or six emails today because of because a year ago I signed up for ZipRecruiter. So spring forward with a new hiring partner, ZipRecruiter, and find top talent sooner. See why four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to this exclusive web address to try ZipRecruiter for free. ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Once again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Hey, listen, men's health is important. Men act all cocky and like they don't need anything. But the reality is, as you get older, there's some things you need. And it often feels like we're too busy to take care of our health problems. Like I'd rather do anything then go to the doctor or the dentist or the pharmacy or whatever. 
But now you don't have to waste your time if you use Hims. Hims, H I M S, Hims is changing men's healthcare by providing simple and convenient access to science backed treatments for erectile dysfunction, hair loss, weight loss, and more. The entire process is 100% online, so you get a new routine of improving your overall health faster. Jay, you listening to all this? Yes, I'm definitely going to use him for now. Not on. that you need it. You're, you're young and healthy. James, I'm 35. You, you're getting there. You might, you might need it. Who knows? But if prescribed, your medication ships directly to you for free and indiscreet packaging. No insurance is needed. You can manage your plan on the Hims app track progress, and learn more about your conditions and how to treat them from leading medical experts. Start your free online visit today at hymns.com slash James. Could you imagine that? There's a whole section just with my name on it, hymns.com slash James. That's how I how much I am representative of the kind of person who needs hymns. That's hims.com slash James for your personalized treatment options, hymns.com slash James. Prescriptions require an online consultation with a healthcare provider who will determine if appropriate. Restrictions apply. See hymns.com slash James for details and important safety information. Subscription required. Price varies based on product and subscription plan. You know, I was once having this conversation with AJ Jacobs, who has a similar kind of approach. Mm -hmm. uh, and I would say... You know, that, that humorous, journalist, gonzo, experimental approach, putting yourself in the story in a weird situation and writing about it. And some of, sometimes he, the books affect him going forward. So uh, like The Year of Living Biblically, which is his most famous mm -hmm. and was his first, um, he did take elements of that out and, and apply them to his daily life to this day. Do you feel like anything from, let's say, the, the psychopath test, uh, uh, or so you've been publicly shamed, which we'll get to in a second, applies to your to your life right now? Yeah, I'd say the sort of thought process that began with the psychopath test and then kind of enveloped, so you've been publicly shamed, is kind of impossible for me to, to relinquish. And that's just like a different... I said to somebody the other day that I, in, in a weird kind of way, I think I've gone from being the prosecution to the defense uh, of, over my career. Like, I'm much more interested in trying to un understand people who are kind of demonized and dehumanized and when appropriate, try and rehumanize them. Um, I think most people deserve that. Not, not everybody, but most people do. So, 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 so I want to, I want to ask about that because, and these are kind of in the weeds questions about these books. I highly encourage everybody to read all of your books, but like, let's just talk about these two last two books for a second. Mm -hmm. So you've been publicly shamed and the psychopath test. In the psychopath test, you have the guy who's in the hospital who mm -hmm. seems to all outward appearances totally normal, and he's even insisting, I'm not a psychopath. And the doctors, of course, say, that's like the exact same thing yeah. a psychopath would say. Yeah. And you get into this weird Kafka-esque thing where like, you can't figure your way. Like, who could be? They're both sort of right. And how you? How do you ever get out of that situation? If you're like, I felt for the guy who was, you know, kind of being held there. Like, how would he get out of there if he wasn't a psychopath? Yeah. Well, actually, so his story is that when he was seventeen, he beat someone up badly in Reading, which is near London, and he was on remand in prison. And his cellmate said to him. 
you know, you're looking at five to seven years in prison unless you fake madness. Mm. And then you'll get sent to some cushy hospital, you know, have your own PlayStation, nurses will bring you pizzas. So that's what he did. So he faked delusions and hallucinations. Um, he said he told the prison psychiatrist that he wanted to watch women as they died because it would make him feel more normal, which it turns out is faking madness too well because they didn't send him to some cushy hospital. They sent him to Broadmoor, which is like the most secure... Um, well, it used to be called the Broadmoor Asylum for the Criminally Insane. So they sent him there and then he was stuck. Um, because what happened was the clinicians there felt that only a psychopath would fake madness to escape a prison sentence. So sure, he's not mentally ill like he was faking, but he is a psychopath. Why do you think he's a psychopath? Well, actually, I think he is a psychopath, um, actually. I mean, I was, I was fond of Tony. And this opens up a really interesting question about if, some, like if, if somebody who does score high on the psychopath checklist is being quite charming to you and funny, is that because they are utilizing superficial charm as a way to manipulate you? Or can you just try and enjoy that positive aspect of the person's personality? Um, so I quite enjoyed being with Tony, but he is a psychopath. I mean, finally, after 14 years inside Broadmoor, uh, he would have got like five to seven years in prison, but he made the mistake of faking madness, which meant he was incarcerated in a mental hospital for 14 years. So if anyone is listening to this who's considering faking madness, don't. So, so but he couldn't, there was, would there have been any way for him to convince them he he was just faking it. The more he tried to convince them, the more not nuts he seemed. Because <laughs> he said but that seems like, scary and crazy. <laughs> oh, totally, totally. Um, he said, like, how do you how do you sit and you know? Because everybody suffers from you know cognitive biases, including psychiatrists. So uh, you know, he said, like, how do you sit in a sane way? Like, I'm trying to sit in a sane way. Like, the more you desperately try and seem sane, the more you come over as like you know nuts. So that was because, like, no matter what you do, at some point, seems like a tactic. Yeah. Well, one of his approaches. This was when he was like stuck in Broadmoor. One of his approaches was he would just talk to talk to the nurses about normal things, like things he'd read in the paper. And one time he read an article in, in the paper about how the US Army was training bumblebees to sniff out explosives. So he said to a nurse, uh, did you know that the US Army is training bumblebees to sniff out explosives? And then when he saw his medical notes, they'd written, thinks bees can sniff out explosives. So how did you conclude that he actually was, in fact? Well, after 14 years... In 12 years inside Broadmoor and then two years inside the Maudsley, which used to be called Bedlam, and that's the reason why uh. Bedlam exists as a, as a word, um, he got, finally got released. And since then, he's been back in jail. Part, part, of the, part of the terms of his release was that if he committed a crime, he would be, um, he'd go to prison and not mental hospital. He's been back three times since then. And this was a guy who was like stuck for 14 years. On each of those occasions, he like got into some bar fight. So he, one of the items on the psychopath checklist is impulsivity. So he definitely has that and poor behavioral controls. Another item on the psychopath checklist is cunning manipulative. And quite frankly, he doesn't seem particularly cunning or manipulative, which you could argue um, shed some shade on the psychopath checklist because how can you be both impulsive and have poor behavioural controls and also coldly planning? That's describing two very different sorts of people. 
Okay, so like when you go to, let's say, a CEO like Albert Dunlap, who you cover in the psychopath test, uh-huh. um, do you see uh, uh, a little bit of both there? Like on the one hand, he'll go into a company and fire 50,000 people, but on the other hand, so that seems impulsive, but on the other hand, it's maybe cunning to use that to leverage into the next CEO position and it's cunning to negotiate a super high salary for that. So there's, I can mm. see both elements there. Totally. I think it is possible to be to be cunning and manipulative. I'm not and saying also, he's a psychopath, by the way, but there's just those two elements in, sure. in his personality. Yeah, no, I think I think it is possible to be both, to be both coldly planning and also impulsive. But I also think somebody who's impulsive but not coldly planning and somebody who's coldly planning and not impulsive can still score the same score on the psychopath checklist. And that's the problem. So it is possible to be both, but it does show that there, you can argue that there's a problem with the checklist because it can describe, it can give the same score to people who have very different personalities. And and how do you distinguish on, on this test between a psychopath and a narcissist? Um, and I, now we're digging into the weeds a little bit. But I'm just curious. Yeah, well, I the think, narcissist, there's a sense that okay, they're not going to always be. You could draw out their empathy with love and kindness, and, yeah. and so on. I think. I, I think the adage is all psychopaths are narcissists, but not all narcissists are psychopaths. I think that's the answer to that question. I think. I think they're both very hard to cure. Um, I was actually at Alex Jones's uh, custody hearing recently, and and he was publicly—I'm not saying anything secret—he was publicly diagnosed as having narcissistic personality disorder. And I remember there was like talk in court about that particular disorder and just how hard it is to to treat. And can that's that can that really be diagnosed? Because let's say a clinician just politically disagreed with him. That's probably what the disorder they would assign him to. <laughs> well, he was he was um, officially diagnosed, but I but I don't know the backstory. I, I know it's, that it's really has- interesting to be. I mean, I could see someone being diagnosed as bipolar. Mm-hmm. I could see how someone could be diagnosed as borderline personality disorder. There's sort of like very distinct mm-hmm. actions they would do mm-hmm. for those two things. But narcissism's a bit more muddy, right? Yeah. Psychopathy, not necessarily. Like there are... But you can't, there's not even a diagnosis for that. Right? No, it's an- antisocial personality yeah. disorder. That's that's what it's called in the DSM. Um, I mean, I'm constantly surprised at how when our brains go wrong, they go wrong in uncannily similar ways. So an, OC- an OCD sufferer in... Uh, Arkansas might think, oh my God, um, I just had a bad thought. The devil must live inside of me. An OCD sufferer in London won't think that because there's just not a religious culture in London in the same way. But But an OCD sufferer in London is very likely to think, oh my God, I just had like a bad thought. Maybe I'm racist. But when you think about it, that's it's the same thing. It's just it's it's the veneer is different, but but it's very similar. Right. It's a, it's a certain kind of um, anxiety disorder, like mm. OCD, where something in the brain which might calm down anxieties gets is not there and gets released in these odd ways. And it's yes. the same thing. Like I, I I had someone in my family with an extreme version of of bipolar, and I think what most people don't realize is how different it is from the movies. It's not like one day they're sad and one day they're happy. It's mm. like one day they're 
sad and asleep for tw- one one year. They're sad and asleep for twenty three hours a day, and the next year they're just a comp- they're like a monster. They're a completely different right. person. God, so hot. Yeah, um, and I don't I don't know why it's not portrayed realistically in most media. In media, it's like oh, I'm bipolar, and it's not right. really. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. not really treated seriously. Yeah. And I'm, and borderline personality disorder, same thing. It's not even really talked about in, in media, but many people yeah. suffer from it. Yeah, it's actually funnily enough, I'm 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 writing a lot since I wrote um Okja, uh, which is a Netflix movie about a giant pig. I wrote I wrote it with the director, Bob Jun Ho. Uh, I've been offered some screenplays to write, and one of the screenplays I'm working on at the moment has somebody who has borderline personality disorder. So I'm I'm hoping I can write it kind of accurately. Also, I don't oh, d- define uh, uh-huh. Define borderline personality disorder for me, and I'll tell you if that matches what I'm. I think it okay. is. Okay. Well, let me give you a definition that um, I was. Uh, um, do you ever watch Crazy Ex-Girlfriend? No. Okay, it's a really good show. Okay. On um, Netflix. And it's on Amazon. Amazon. I think. Okay. I, I watch it on Amazon anyway. I'm sure you can get it somewhere else. Uh, oh, I think it's from Comedy. I can't remember. Anyway. It's a good show. Um, she, I think she has borderline personality disorder. I think one way of describing it is it's just, it's all the emotions that everybody has just in, in a much more intense way. So, for instance, if you're insecure and you're good looking, um, are you a woman, a young woman, you may gravitate towards being a porn performer. Uh, because oh, 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 I see a point. Yeah, because that's a way of sort of getting validation. Uh, so that's something that's a sort of you could argue that's a sort of extreme way of dealing with uh, with insecurity. Okay, so that's different than what I thought. So what I thought would be what it was the way it's been described to me is let's take the same woman, someone who might say I love you one second and then an hour later. Mm-hmm. Just as seriously says, I hate you. Yeah, and I think it's really intense thing. in both ways. Yeah, exactly. It's the same thing. I think in you know the the um, uh, the the thing that goes from from one to the other is is intensity. It's mm. a kind of intense feeling. So exactly, you if you have borderline personality disorder, you will love somebody intensely, but then if they do something a little bit wrong, you'll hate them intensely. But it can happen really fast. So it's different yeah. from bipolar, which I feel is you know. It has more of a spectrum of time rather than instantaneous. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's really also so borderline people with borderline personality disorder will have uns, will, will put themselves into unsafe situations. So, so think, they'll have like unsafe sex, or they'll develop like eating disorders, um, hmm. or you know, again, it's it's to sort of. I think I'm right in saying that it comes. It's 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 a form of PTSD. I, I think it's it's a way. Of of dealing with childhood abuse. So, I think I agree with that just based on what mm-hmm. I've read and experienced. But do you think that's a brain damage thing, or do you think that's something where it's just through experiences your brain's been re- rewired in this unhealthy way, and and now with talk therapy and maybe medication, you can rewire it back to normal. I'm trying to think about borderline. I, I think this is like bipolar. I think is more brain damage. Right. Um. <sighs> Where and narcissism, probably talk therapy can help. Can help, and but medication. it's really hard. But, but I think psycho, that, yeah. psychopaths can't be. Yeah, well, I've heard that narcissism, like proper serious narcissism disorders, just as hard to treat as psychopathy. Mm. With borderline, there, there is a there is a treatment that people are really 
um, excited about with Borderline, but I but I can't remember the name of it. Um, if I googled it, I would find out that there is a particular treatment that's that's that seems to be working for people, but I just don't remember the name of it. I would think maybe for some of these, probably some kind of anti-anxiety medications would probably help just to keep you calm at those moments where you're about to switch. Yeah, although my feeling about borderline personality disorder is that it's a form of it's a form of talk therapy, a form of CBT, and it's got a particular name, but I just can't remember the name. So, so, so you've been publicly shamed is so interesting because in this day and age, uh, I mean, I'll give the, the classic example which you write about uh, throughout the book. Justine Sacco takes off on a plane, makes a joke about being white and not getting AIDS, you know, and so on. She's a very inappropriate comment, mm -hmm. um, but she was the publicist for Interactive Corp, which is a multi-billion dollar corporation, you know, owns many common brands that we've all heard of. Uh, and the plane, uh, the, the tweet goes viral. Everyone hates her and, and, and so on because... The comment is so inappropriate and and racist and so on. And, and she was asleep. Um, she was asleep throughout the entire process, and that became very much part of the fun for people that we know something that she doesn't. She's asleep on a plane going from. Did we know she was asleep? Uh, well, she well she was asleep, but yeah. she was on a plane. Like she didn't have Wi Fi, right? So she didn't know. What became hilarious to the whole world was that she was being torn to shreds and destroyed and put on trial and convicted and sentenced before she even knew that she was on trial. Like, I forget, when she landed... Well, a hashtag was trending worldwide. Hashtag has Justine landed yet. Can I and, oh, can I take exception to something you said a moment ago, yeah, yeah. though? Um, I asked... So the, so the, the, the joke, quote-unquote, was going to Africa, hope I don't get AIDS, just kidding, I'm white. Right. So that was the joke that went around the world. I didn't want to actually say it because, uh, you, you know. Well, yeah, I think you have to say it. Right? All right, fair enough. So I, um, like everybody else who was on Twitter that night, thought, um, excuse my language, but I thought, I saw that tweet overwhelmed my Twitter feed, and I thought, great, somebody's fucked. And just like everybody else, I sort of, you know, sat up, put the pillow behind my head and just stared at my phone and waited to see what would happen next. But then... Um, I started thinking to myself, I started thinking more about that joke. Now, I think we can agree that that's like a bad joke and yes. it's not a joke. It's inappropriate. It's inappropriate, particularly out of context. Um, what I mean by that is is if she was a famous edgy comedian, if she was Sarah Silverman or if she was Trey Parker or Matt Stone or something, it would, you know, there would be a context. With her, there was zero context. Well, and also even, even the worst for her is that she was the public voice of, of a, a very important company. Yeah, Barry Diller's IAC. Um, but as I was sitting in bed waiting for her plane to land, somebody had linked to a flight tracker website so everybody could see when her plane was going to land. And that was hilarious to people. It was hilarious to Donald Trump, who tweeted that night. It was hilarious to... Oh, I don't remember that. Yeah, it was hilarious to social justice people. It was hilarious to bored hipsters. It was hilarious to misogynistic trolls who were tweeting things like, somebody HIV positive should rape this bitch and then we'll find out if her skin colour protects her from AIDS. So while I was sitting there watching all of this unfold, I thought to myself, as a fan of Randy Newman and as a fan of South Park, 
I thought there is a liberal comedic tradition of people doing a kind of grotesque, exaggerated version of their own privilege as a way of mocking privilege. And I thought, I wonder if that joke is a bad example of that um, honourable liberal comedic tradition. Um, Still inappropriate given her job, say. Sure, and... She wasn't a comedian. um, You know, she would say that herself. Like, Mm. she's not defensive in any way about that Mm. tweet. She thinks it's... She correctly thinks it's the worst thing she's did in her life. Um, And she was punished, like, very severely for it. Um, But that is what she was trying to do. I I met her a couple of weeks later in a bar and asked her to to explain the joke to me. And she said, living in America puts us in a bubble when it comes to what is going on in the developing world. The third world, she said. I was making fun of that bubble. So she was... Do you believe her? Yes, I really do. Because I'd come to that conclusion myself. Because by three weeks later, though, I'm sure she had been media trained her way out of this. Well, actually, nothing... Like, all that had happened in the two or three weeks between that joke and me meeting her was... Like her life crumbled. Yeah, yeah, she 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 lost her job. The police had to escort her in South Africa. Um, when the plane landed, were there like were there crowds waiting? I forget. Uh, there was one photographer. Some, somebody had said, you know, come on Twitter. Somebody must go to the airport. So there was one guy who who posted a picture of her. And, and again, I apologize for for forgetting the uh-huh. in the narrative. But uh, uh, what what did she feel when she first realized? This is worldwide. Oh my God! I mean, it was it was it's like the Blair Witch Project. Um, it was an extraordinary confluence of circumstance. She she was she wasn't trying to be racist. She was trying to be liberal. She was asleep, so she couldn't. So all of this happened without her realizing. The whole world got involved. I mean, she united a lot of disparate groups while she was asleep on that plane, you know, from from misogynistic, you know, alt-right assholes through to kind-hearted philanthropists and social justice people and hipsters and Trump and everything. Kind of like in your book, Them, when the Islamists, radical Islamists and the KKK... Yeah, all get together. Yeah, they find one thing to fixate on, fixate their anger on, and it happens to be the same thing. Yeah, yeah, Absolutely. So she, so her plane landed and she turned on her phone and the first thing that happened was a text that came up from somebody that she hadn't seen since high school who said, I am so sorry to see what's happening to you right now. Uh, so then she looked at it, baffled, and then the next text was from her best friend who said, you need to phone me right now. You are the worldwide number one trending topic on Twitter. So then she understood what, what had happened. Did she ever think about suicide during this period? Um Actually, funnily enough, you're the second person in a in a week to ask me that question. I think she didn't, but I think a lot of people in a situation like that do, and some do commit suicide. The reason why I've been thinking about that lately is because um, the reason I've been thinking about that lately is because there's a little bit of revisionism going on right now. I've noticed on social media about how. Oh, it's just tweets. You know, it's not... I think, like, Barry Weiss, who's a New York Times columnist, and a few other people are sort of... Uh, she's been writing about the Me Too movement. Yeah, and and she's sort of pushing back against sort of online shaming, and so there's backlash against her. And I've noticed a few times people are saying, oh, you know, fucking hell, Barry Weiss, you know, it's just, it's just tweets, it's just criticism. Um, and when I see that, that really bugs me, because there's a, there's been a lot of suicides and a lot of, you know massive impact on people's mental health. You, you know, it, it's yeah. I, the reason I, I bring some of this up 
not the suicide part, but mm-hmm. uh, what uh, uh, I've been thinking about your book a lot lately. So I write a lot of different articles over the years, and some of them have high opinions, and some of them have gotten me um, a larger audience. And as that happens, people who want to kind of ride that those coattails a little bit will write something that trashes me. This happens maybe like once every year or so. And sometimes it's pretty brutal and people jump on that ban- the hate articles bandwagon. The article might be totally filled with lies, totally out of con take something I said totally out of context and just lie about me, but just do it in this really mm-hmm. hateful way. But then what happens is the people who feed off that hate article get even worse. Like you were just saying, you know, like you, someone would tweet someone HIV positive should rape her. Like obviously that's so yeah. hateful. But I and by the way, guess how many people went after that person? No one. Right. So I had this. I, so I, in twenty fourteen, I had the same thing happen. Someone wrote an article about me, and then other people were saying, "Oh, I would anally rape this guy," and like just the worst, most horrible things. Yeah. And I'm like, and they how get do you... a free pass, right? And like, uh, uh, and it's happened to me somewhat recently. I um, I have one thing I do, which is involved in cryptocurrencies and. We, I bought a lot of ads to advertise my product, which is a very good product. No one's actually complained about the product itself, but people didn't like the ads. So a whole bunch of articles and thousands and thousands of tweets, like just said the worst, even lies, like just despicable things about me. And I would sometimes ask people, did you actually look at the product? And no one, no one had it. It was just, they tried to figure things out about me from these ads and they were, okay, they, they would call me up misquote me, lie about the quotes. Uh, everything was horrible. Yeah. It's just like this common method now, it feels, in, let's say, poor journalism. Mm. And it's just, it's there's nothing you can do about it. So what I what I thought about a lot during this time, and this is just recently, in in your book, at the end, you asked Justine Sacco what she should have done, and she says, you know what, in retrospect, I should have done absolutely nothing. Right. <laughs> Which is what I've been doing. I just haven't responded to anybody or anything and in general, that does make the hate die down, but it, it feels yeah. really horrible while you're being hated. Yeah. It's you know, it's it's I I joked um that you know, one one thing that's come from all I've joked on stage about in fact, look, can I tell you a story? Yeah. Kind of a slightly painful story. Um I gave a talk at the Oxford Union, which you think is gonna be like amazing because it kind of looks like Hogwarts. Um but it's not amazing. It's really badly organized and I had like a really shitty time. But but on stage at the Oxford Union, I joked about, you know, how one thing that's come from all of this is that, you know, schlubby white men are learning for the first time what it feels like to be objectified, which is kind of progress in a way. Anyway, everybody laughed and 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 it kind of moved on. And but then the Oxford Union was live tweeting my event. <laughs> And then when I was in the car on the way back, I was like, oh, I wonder what, what the live tweets are like. So it's like John Ronson is taking the stage. John Ronson believes white men are being objectified. <laughs> John Ronson is leaving the stage, basically. Oh my god! So yes, I was fucking furious. So I phoned him up and got them to. So a lot it. of people probably got very angry. Well, luckily I, I nipped it in the bud before it went too crazy. Because of course, decontextualized. That sounds fucking terrible. Yeah. But obviously, you know, within context, I was making a nuanced, interesting, funny point. But but, but but yeah, so basically, but yeah, I think it's a real problem, and it's and it's not a real problem because it's like hurting people's feelings. Although although it's, for me personally, uh-huh. they, they hurt my feelings, and well, I had to okay, psychologically so, deal with it. Sure, well you're right. Because I was it, trying to do something good. 
You're right. Okay, it's a real problem in part because it's hurting people's feelings un- unfairly. Um, but the other reason is because it's changing. It's changing the culture. It's turning us. You know, right at the beginning of this interview, I talked about how valuable it was for me to be chased by the Bilderberg Group because it meant I could see the world through the eyes of of the radical fringes. I, I got paranoid like they did. Now, fortunately, I've got the kind of resources to 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 go back again and become rational again. But I found that a really valuable experience yeah. um, because it meant I was kind of curious. I was curious. It was yeah. about curious. It's about trying to understand other people. And these days, curiosity... We were talking about Justine Sacco. Asking for a little bit of patience and curiosity that night, can we not just wait for her plane to land to hear what she has to say for herself? That was considered a weakness that Mm. night. Curiosity was considered weak next to instant judgment. Mm. Now, I kind of understand this because a lot of really positive things are coming out of online shaming, especially in the last year. Um, Charlottesville... Me Too, Parkland, you know, these are like amazing things. Um, But there's a, but a lot of bad stuff's happening as well. And and the bad stuff doesn't make the good stuff less good. But the bad stuff is that we're becoming a much more judgmental, instantly judgmental, polarized, yelling society. It feels like we all with this, we're polluting the waters, and what is emerging from the polluted waters are a, a three-eyed fish in the form of President Trump. And mm. and I, I'm convinced, like I'm convinced that this sort of instant judgment culture of Twitter is the reason why we're in the mess that we're in now. But maybe, maybe there's a backlash from that, which is allows for the Me Too movement, allowed for people to speak out when previously they were afraid. Oh, sure. And now they got terrified so they had, their gun was to their heads to speak out, so to speak. Like, what what do you mean by that? Like, maybe uh, Trump being elected polarized people who have for twenty years been silent, mm. and now they said, you know what, I better speak, or else it's going to get worse. Sure, that's definitely the upside of what's going on. Definitely, um, we're living in this kind of very weird time where where regular people have more power in some ways, than, than they've had for 150 years since public punishments were outlawed. Um, we get to decide the severity of people's... To an extent, we get to, survive, we get to decide the severity of some people's uh, punishments. So right now, I mean, it's incredible. You know, we're, I don't know when you're going to be putting this out, but what happened today in the news was that Dick's Sporting Goods um, said, OK, you know, we are not going to be part of the problem anymore. We're not going to let people under the age of 21 buy guns. We're not going to be selling, you know, AR-15s. And it's because of, you know, Emma Gonzalez and these kids. I mean, that's sure. that's extraordinary. Uh, but that doesn't mean that the, that the flip side of it, where people are being disproportionately punished for some minor transgression, which isn't social justice, it's a kind of cathartic, easy alternative to social justice, isn't a real problem. And because we're the ones with the power, it's really important for us to be the ones to distinguish between people who deserve it or or, or serious transgressions and unserious transgressions, important movements and ruining some woman for for a badly worded joke. I mean, if I'm listening to this though, and there's always going to be moments that flare up appropriately, like let's say Emma Gonzalez and the Parkland and the the Mm -hmm. horror that, that happened, that's that's going to flare up. The, the important thing listening to this 
is to be a voice like you are with your writing. I try to be often, many people try to be, become, build a following by being a voice of patience. And then you can say, okay, I like this and I like that. You know, I like this yeah. movement that Emma Gonzalez is doing. I like, you know, the Me Too, I, I'm a, the Me Too movement is saying some interest, is saying very interesting things that are, that are polarizing, but need to be listened to. So, mm -hmm. so building up a, 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 an audience by having the opposite of the crowd, being that voice of patience and not judgmental builds trust, I think. I think so. And I think we've had, when I say we, I'm thinking about kind of me and Monica Lewinsky, who brought out her. I always think of you two together. <laughs> well, we've actually become one really nice thing about being out publicly, so you've been publicly shamed is I've actually become quite good friends with her and we have like lunch together and stuff because she brought out her TED talk, which was kind of about the same thing, about yeah. online bullying, the same time I brought my book out. And and I, I, I do think we sort of help to to change the conversation a little bit, or at least make the conversation a bit more yeah. nuanced. And um, I, yeah, I think it's. I think I think what's really important is don't become Mister Shame. Like I, I almost yeah. never. I probably every day I turn down, you know, articles like will you just just on my way here, a magazine said, you know, will you write an article about Barry Weiss's mm. tweet? This was a tweet she said about immigrants, um, and I sort of turned it down. And I, and I think that's that's really important because you don't want to become like Mr. Shame. Mm. Um, my friend John Safran says I'm becoming like a kind of shaming imam, and that's like the last thing in the world I want to be. So I think that's important too, is to not just bore people by saying the same shit over and over again. Well, John... Uh... I, I've been I've been getting in the weeds of so many of your books because I'm fascinated by all of them, and you say so many interesting things, and your style is interesting. Will you, will you? So first off, we talked about so you've been publicly shamed. We talked about the psychopath test. We talked about them. You also have your podcast, uh, Psychopath Night. You have uh, the other one, oh no, the Butterfly Effect. Yeah. So my podcast is called the Butterfly Effect, which season one was about the consequences of the tech takeover of the porn industry. Right, which is, was fascinating, by the way. And I, I loved well, it. So, so the question I have for you is: Will you come back on again? And I want to kind of dive into your process of how you think about all these things and and so on, because I think you're like a a one man media. Empire. empire, yeah. I, I don't even know what to call it. It's not quite empire. You're like no, a machine a of like word. great ideas. I'm, I'm a machine in the sense that I I have constant guilt about not working all the time. Um, so it's a machine. It's a machinery that comes from psychological. Right, but what's interesting distress. is that over time you build, and it's we're talking about twenty years. You build up this body of work that becomes immense, and so it's kind of as an example that you know time wins the war not working every second of the day. Yeah, that's true. Although I do work every second of the day yeah. and do more more than ever. I don't even know like what what am I racing towards? Like death. We're just racing towards, you know, it's like I, I've been thinking that lately. Like why am I getting up at seven o'clock in the morning? How old are you? Fifty. So I'm fifty also. When's uh, your birthday? May the tenth. Okay, so you're about to turn fifty or you're already fifty? Uh, I'm already fifty. Okay, I just turned fifty. Oh, and so I wonder this too. Yeah. What what, what are we? Is, what are what we is the point of yeah. this, of a goal? Like we're all gonna die. Yeah. And so, are we addicted to having a relevant voice? Or is there some addiction to having people come up to you and saying, "Hey, I loved your book about yeah. the about psychopaths." I think I have an answer to that. I don't think it's those things. Like I'm I'm not that interested in that. But I asked. I made this documentary years ago about Randy Newman, this, the singer songwriter called "I Am Unfortunately Randy Newman," and I asked him that question. 
I said, you know, why, why do you do it? Why do you write songs? And he said, it's how I judge myself and it's how I feel better. And right, but that's an addiction too. He's giving an outside validation, an outside metric. Yeah. Because we don't know yet why, how he evaluates, values a song. Is it because if it's sold a lot or if he personally likes it? In which mm -hmm. case, we don't know the answer yet to that. Yeah, I guess not. But I, I guess the, the answer is probably a mix, of, a mix of the two, right? So there still might be some of this addiction to like, I want my songs out there so people listen so I get that external yeah. validation because I don't have it inside myself yeah. as much as I would like. It's not healthy, but I'd say it's accurate. And I'd say it's accurate for me too. It's just how I, it's how I judge myself and how I feel better. Like I get very antsy if I'm not working. So I do want to recommend all your books and your podcasts. We've named them a bunch of times, but John Ronson... And the next time you're you're back on, I really want to talk about this question right. and your process and how you think of these ideas because they're all like genius ideas. And I'm, I'm curious what the ratio is of bad ideas to good ideas. So you'll you'll come on again. Yeah, we'll what come on again? And, uh, is right here. You'll you'll we'll schedule we'll schedule cool. John again. And uh, uh, I really appreciate you coming on. And 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 I've been such a fan for uh, like 20 years. So I'm I'm glad we finally uh, meet and, and get to talk. And was, I hope we do this again. It was really fun. And yeah, let's let's do it again in like a month or so. Yeah, perfect. Cool. Okay. Right, thanks, John. Next time on the James Altucher Show. The entire book is structured around that, right? So Machiavelli says that there are three parts of a conspiracy, the planning, the doing, and the aftermath, essentially, or before, during, and after. And he actually says that the after is the most dangerous part. Machiavelli is basically saying states can wage war, but a conspiracy is available to everyone. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. -ba -ba.